At Emory University's Guizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. In an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Guizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Goizueta Business School and your host. Today I'll be joined by Sandy Jap. Partnerships are critical in business. They can serve to expand the pie of joint benefits, improve profits, and gain sustainable competition. But successful partnerships don't often last or come easy. In fact, research shows between 50 to 60% of partnerships and alliances fail. Sandy Jap joins to discuss the common pitfalls of partnering and how often well-meaning efforts serve to unintentionally poison relationships from the inside out. She shares tips on how to bulletproof your partnerships and adapt your relationship management strategies to a constantly changing and dynamic environment. Sandy Jap is the Sarah Beth Brown Professor of Marketing at Emory University's Goizueta Business School. Prior to this, she held faculty positions at MIT's Sloan School of Management and University of Pennsylvania's The Wharton School. She has published widely on topics such as strategic partnering and organizational relationships, go-to market strategies, and e-procurement. She is the author of Partnering with a Frenemy, a book on the dark side of business relationships. Her work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, CFO Magazine, and Harvard Business Review. Welcome, Sandy. Hi, Melanie. Thank you for having me here today. So let's get started. You've spent a large part of your academic life studying partnerships, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In fact, you open your book with a reference to the concept of synergy. One plus one can equal three. Why are partnerships important, and what drew you to this field of study? Right. So I love this idea of one plus one equals three, or I often refer to it as pie expansion. And the idea is kind of putting two entities together and being better off as a result of being together as opposed to being alone. So when we talk about partnerships, I'm mostly talking about partnerships between organizations as opposed to individuals, although a lot of the phenomena and a lot of uh, the ins and outs of managing it are almost exactly the same. Partnerships between organizations are just so important. You can easily think of manufacturers working with distributors, distributors with wholesalers, um, agencies with um, internet partners, communication partners, partners. Um, retailers with suppliers. There are so many, so many forms of partnerships. So we know that all of um, distribution activity in the U.S. can account for over $3 trillion, or about 30% of our nominal GDP. So in essence, just the activities, the sales activities that happen between firms that are often the basis of partnerships represents a huge amount of coin in our nation and in our economy. Now, as far as what drew me to this field of study, I just, I've always thought it was interesting how relationships between organizations and individuals could go so well and could also go so badly. 
And the answers to these questions as to why they go well, why they go badly, to me, that has just always been a source of fascination that has really fueled a lot of my research over the years. I think it's it's a very complicated thing to study, but I really love the challenge. Well, despite the vast benefits of partnerships, they are difficult to maintain. Once harmonious partners often become frenemies, and that's a big subject in your book. So in the business sense, can you describe what frenemies are? I really like this term of frenemies because it basically means a good thing has gone bad. And partnerships have a tendency over time to frenemize. So the best partnerships, they start out well, they are very successful, both parties get a lot out of it, but then they almost inevitably will turn a corner and start to unravel. That can be either slowly or very rapidly. And so we can see how a good thing goes bad over time, and it happens pretty regularly. And let's talk a little bit about an example here. So in your book, you use the story of Google and Samsung to describe a good partnership gone bad. Can you tell us about this journey and highlight some of the common pitfalls of partnering at Underscores? Yeah, Google and Samsung is one of my favorite examples of partnering relationships because they have done everything right in the sense that Google has some capabilities that Samsung does not. So Google provides the operating software for cell phones, while Samsung is a manufacturer of the phone itself. So you have these two companies, two very different capabilities. They come together and they have this fabulous distribution strategy. You know, unlike Apple, instead of just selling through AT&T, they sell through all sorts of carriers. They soak the market. And, and basically, they are the number one market share carriers in the world. They beat Apple um, very handily. And they, you know, in every sense of the book, they were hugely successful. The problem with partnerships is that as they become more successful, it breeds this dependence between the companies. And what they start to realize and what happened with Google and Samsung, and this dynamic happens a lot, is um, Samsung starts to become worried that Google might become too strong and that they as a partner might want a larger and larger share of the pie. And at the same time, both partners realize they're heavily dependent on the other. And when this happens, what firms will often do is something called counterbalancing. So they will try to push back on that feeling of dependence by um, doing something that makes them feel like they have some power over that. So in Google and Samsung's example, what happened is that Samsung went out and started to develop an alternative, a replacement to Google, and it was an operating system called Tizen. And Google then said, okay, well, you know, if you're going to do that, we could develop an alternative to you. And they went out and they bought Motorola. And so you could see, like, these moves are very confrontational, high-stakes sort of moves, but that both companies are trying to manage this feeling of dependence. Now, 
This effort to counterbalance their dependence is something that research has shown to be actually a good thing. I mean, most firms will make money doing that. But while you will win something financially, you lose a lot relationally. And what happens as a result of that is those efforts tend to sour the relationship and it becomes quickly acrimonious. Um, Both sides become extremely suspicious of the other. There's a lot of vilification that happens on both sides. And ultimately, the relationship will just spiral downwards, um, often irreparably. And so that's just a common journey, a common path that frenemization walks along. And it's not something that's just limited to Google and Samsung. There are so many examples of this happening between firms, like more recent examples we can think of. Theranos and Walgreens. Uh, We can think of Mobileye and Tesla. So Mobileye is the company that develops a self-driving capability um, for Tesla. Their relationship fell apart. Costco and Coke, that relationship um, has fallen apart. Costco is, is very well known for having a lot of frenemies. Um, And so, you know, there are just countless examples of basically this kind of relationship dynamic repeating itself um, over and over. Talking about the relationship uh, repeating itself over and over, you talk a lot in your book about uh, partnership life cycles. And strong partnerships have been described by some as a good marriage. So can you talk a little bit about the life cycle of a partnership and equate it to the life cycle of a relationship and the phases one might go through? Yeah. So when academics talk about life cycles, we're usually talking about how something unfolds over time. And life cycles, they have these phases. Um, We see life cycles in sales life cycles, product life cycles. We also see them in relationships. The first phase is usually just awareness that there's a potential partner out there um, and maybe getting to know that partner, maybe doing a little bit of business with them. And then that often, if that goes well, that'll move into more of a build-up phase. And in a build-up phase there, both partners will maybe increase the amount of activities and sales and transactions between them, maybe broaden a little bit the scope of what they're doing. Um, maybe intensify the relationship by doing more business. Um, And then it'll often reach a point of maturity. And in the mature phase, you're just kind of um, stably transacting consistently over a period of time. You're making a lot of money together. Oftentimes things are going well. You kind of stabilized. Um, It's less about learning and exploring and, and investing in each other. And it's more about reaping the benefits of having built that relationship together. And then the final phase is often a phase that we call disillusion or decline. And here, this is when the growth, um, whether it be in sales or benefits to the partners, will tend to kind of flatten out and oftentimes start to um, decline. So in this phase, you might have partners that are looking at each other and saying, you know, am I really getting the benefits that I need out of this relationship? Maybe I should be thinking about alternative partners. Maybe I should be pulling back because the growth and the opportunity just really isn't there anymore. And you share that the failure of partnerships is often not operational in nature at all, but instead related to the management of people. 
This includes their relationships with each other and across organizational units, which I imagine in, in organizations as complex as you're talking about get pretty um, complicated and interwoven. So can you further explain the research around this, about how important relationship management is? Organizations are made up of people, individuals. So we can often think of the relationships between people and managing those relationships as the building blocks for what's happening at an organizational level. And if we think about how relationships develop and play out between individuals, well, there's a lot of social psychology research that speaks to this and tells us a lot about how a relationship between um, two humans play out and develop over time. One of my favorite myths about relationships and relationship development is this idea that the more experience you have in relationships, the better you get. So it actually turns out to be completely false. Mm -hmm. And just as a very broad antidote, I'll give you as an example the fact that for decades, the divorce rate um, among individuals and in marriages has hovered around 50% for decades. And that really hasn't changed. But what a lot of people don't understand or recognize is that the divorce rate for the second marriage, the failure rate, um, instead of decreasing over time, actually increases to 67% for your second marriage mm -hmm. and to 73% for your third marriage. Mm -hmm. So that just suggests that experience doesn't necessarily make you better. It just actually just makes you a little older. <laughs> and in the same way, experience in partnering relationships and in managing relationships between organizations doesn't necessarily mean that you will be better at it or more successful because it's not just a matter of experience that makes partnering successful. So while building rapport is essential and can grease the wheels of a partnership, you can have too much of a good thing. Can you explain how rapport between partners can lead them to make irrational economic choices, throw their clients under the bus, and even discard their morals? Oh, yes. Well, so um, all of those results that you just described comes from one of my favorite studies. Um, this is a study that I actually conducted uh, together with co-authors here at Goizetta. So um, the, some of those co-authors were, at the time, uh, Diana Robertson, who was here on the faculty in O&M and is now on the faculty at Wharton, um, and Ryan Hamilton, who is my colleague in the marketing area currently. So we ran an experiment, and what we were interested in is this idea of how um, a salesperson, for example, um, and a buyer might come together. And usually what they're told in negotiations is that you should, first of all, build rapport. So there's a very famous book. It's about building, about using emotions in negotiations. And the central idea is that every negotiation should start out, first of all, by building positive rapport and just getting a sense that, you know, the two parties are connecting and kind of, you know, together on, on issues. And what we observed in this experiment, so we, we used the case, a case, it's called Bullard Houses. It's a well-known case in negotiation circles. 
And it's about the sale of a set of condos um, from a seller to a potential buyer. And the buyer and seller are given different agendas in terms of how, how and when they would be willing to make a deal. And essentially, it comes down to a situation of impasse. And what happens is the terms from the buyer's client are such that a deal could never be made with the seller's client because the terms on the seller's client are completely orthogonal or in opposition to the buyers, okay? So if both the buyer and the seller are acting rationally, they should never be able to make a deal. And yet what we see in these negotiations, and we did this with executives and very experienced business people in our classrooms, is that 70% of them will actually make a deal. Now, why does this happen? Because the economics of it are completely irrational. We dug around, and what we find, what we found out is basically that when you build rapport with your partner in these kind of negotiations, you and your partner will become uh, so overtaken with the importance of building the relationship that's right in front of you that you'll actually prioritize that relationship in front of you over the requests of the client who may not be present. Now, this basically has the effect of trying to please the person that's in front of you instead of remembering and representing your client's best interests. And what we observed in these negotiations, which was very, very revealing, very, very um, surprising, is really just a lot of unethical misbehavior. We saw a lot of lying um, in terms of what their clients uh, wanted, lying to each other. We saw the buyers and sellers would often overpromise things that they really didn't have the power to promise to each other. Um, and essentially, they would just completely compromise their clients' interests and in that way kind of throw them under the bus. Um, and yeah, so the, you know, the lying, uh, the over-promising, the misrepresenting, the omitting um, of important details, all of those we might consider as sort of unethical behavior. And we witnessed all of that happening in these, in these negotiations, even though, think about this, this is in a classroom, so there were no stakes, right? Nobody was gaining extra credit from actually coming to a deal. And all of these individuals had been educated to walk away from a deal if necessary and if it didn't make financial sense. The other thing I found interesting that you said in the book is they were aware they were being recorded and analyzed. Yes, yes. And what's really ironic is after this, when we would ask them in the experiment, how did you feel about that? How did you feel about yourself? We kind of wanted to get a sense of their self-concept. They were like, Great. They thought they had done a great job. They, you know, they liked the person they negotiated with. They were willing to work with that person again. In essence, they basically gave themselves a pat on the back. And so that's why we like to think of rapport as being something that can, under the right conditions, in this case, it was a situation of impasse. So where two parties really could never meet, if you have enough rapport, they will meet, and for all the wrong reasons. So often partnerships are formed in risky and uncertain settings where it may be impossible to forecast what the expanded pie will be. So how does a partner ensure it gets a fair share of the pie? 
Yeah, there are a number of things that partners can do to kind of safeguard their interests and make sure that um, they do get what's coming to them. Um, The most obvious and most common thing is to use a contract and to basically identify um, what would happen if things didn't work out, how things would work, et cetera. Um, The next thing... um, that we use that's probably a little more robust than contracts, what you do is you actually build the relationship by creating norms and how you will work together. And a common tool that I like to use and that I talk about in my book is something called a relationship map. And this, a relationship map basically addresses the fundamental problem that most partnering relationships do not take the time to specify in advance their expectations or how they will work together or how frequently they'll check in about how things are going. And I'll give you an example. Um, At Cisco, what they do is they all start the relationship by asking questions like, well, if conflict comes up, how will that be resolved? I mean, what will be a suitable escalation path? Who's going to get involved? Who gets contacted? What's the speed of escalation in a situation like this? And then they'll ask themselves, well, how will changes in assumptions be dealt with? You know, what's the framework for discussing changes in goals, changes in desires, changes in needs? Uh, What if we have long-term investments at stake? How will we handle that? And on the issue of investments, they might ask things like, well, how will imbalances be remedied? Will you put in more than me? And if so, then, you know, what's an appropriate reciprocal investment? And when do we really think we'll ever recoup our investments? They might ask things as well in terms of how they'd work together, like, well, how often should we be in communication? You know, is it weekly? Is it biweekly? Who gets involved? Um, What's the follow-up protocols? Um, And, you know, what levels of the organization should be talking with whom? These are all examples of how we can manage each other's expectations, how we can kind of put the time in to build the foundations of our relationship well. And I think it's really critical to do this up front. I would say that a lot of partnerships that fail, fail because the partners never took the time to talk about these issues and set expectations up front. I always say that when it comes to having a partnership and doing it well, you need to put the work in, you need to basically pay the price. So you can either pay the price up front in terms of establishing it well so that it functions well, Or you can pay the price in the back end when everything falls apart. So while trust is important, you you share that it can't save the day. What range of mechanisms can you employ to safeguard partnerships? So I actually have some research where we looked at how relationships change over time. And we looked at what happens as a relationship goes into crisis versus when it's not in crisis. And what we see is that we see that when there is no crisis, when all is well, some of the things that you can do that are really useful for the relationships is to build and work on trust between the individuals of the organizations um, and to make investments on both sides. So this might be investments in specific strategies or people or routes that help to expand the pie of benefits between the organization. Those work great when all is well. 
What's interesting, though, is that as a crisis comes along and as things become tougher, those trusts, trust actually becomes almost ineffective, and they really can't save the day. Um, in fact, contracts also cannot save the day and are not useful as things go south. Instead, what does help when crisis comes is to remind each other of our common goals, to look at and focus on investments and reinforce um, what's at stake for both parties. So in essence, what I'm saying is that what's useful in saving the day and making those benefits happen changes over time. Well, let's talk about when it doesn't work out. So the last phase of a partnership dissolution involves the destroying of trust, removal of commitments, and resolution of endless misunderstandings. Can you walk us through what you call the death spiral of Nike and Foot Locker to share what this phase might look like? Yeah. So I, I always like to preface this by saying that, you know, breaking down a relationship is not just the inverse of building it up. So as academics, we study how to build relationships, but we also need to study how to break them down. And so unfortunately, a lot of partnerships break down in some of the worst ways. And Nike and Foot Locker is a great example, although all of my frenemy examples, both in the book and that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, are they all follow kind of a similar dynamic. So in Nike and Foot Locker, what happened is like, they, these guys, they were great partners. Together, they built up the market for tennis shoes, athletic shoes, $16 billion. I mean, that is a massive pie that they shared between them. Everything was going well. They're both, both firms were doing extremely well as a result of having worked together. And at some point, what happened is that Foot Locker became very dissatisfied with what they called rigid selection and pricing terms from Nike. And they kind of felt like Nike wasn't giving them their best stuff. They kind of felt like they didn't have a lot of flexibility as a partner. So what they decided to do in a very bad partner fashion, but this happens a lot, is they basically cut their orders to Nike by about 15 to 25%. And Nike's response, again, in kind of a bad partner fashion, was their response was like, okay, well then we'll just drop our shipments to you. Like, how about 40%? And even more than that, we will withhold our very top sellers from you, um, our best stuff. And Foot Locker's response was like, okay, well, then we're going to just drop our prices further because now we have to boost our sales to make up that revenue. And um, and so it goes on. And, and in this way, the relationship between them just soured to the point where it, it basically became irreparable and they could never salvage that. And in fact, this is kind of why we see Nike stores now. Like we, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we didn't have Nike stores. You could only get Nike through retailers like Foot Locker and, and other um, retailers. But it was really this inability to make this relationship work with their largest distributor, Foot Locker. Well, and you mentioned in your book, sometimes exiting a partnership is the best strategy. However, quite often, like you just discussed, it's done in a poor or acrimonious way. 
Can you share tips on how to exit a partnership with grace and respect and why is it important to do that? So I think it's really important that firms get very good at saying goodbye. There used to be a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I like to say that firms need to learn how to lose friends without influencing people because partnerships are not designed to last forever. And in fact, I hate it when people use the analogy of partnerships are like marriages because the goal of most marriages is often uh, to last forever till death do them part um, and to be monogamous. And in fact, Business partnerships are not like that at all. They are not designed and should never be designed with the intention of lasting forever. Um, And they really shouldn't be that monogamous. I always say businesses should keep their options open. You really want to be in a partnership and keep it alive for as long as it's creating benefits for both organizations. And when, when that ceases to happen, I always say, You know, you got to, first of all, the first step at saying goodbye nicely is to just start to think it through and think about what are the possible end games and who are the winners and losers if this partnership ends. And then the next question to ask yourself is to say, well, what about our customers? You know, how um, will our customers, both internal and external to the firm and the partnership, how are they impacted? How will they be impacted if we break up? And then at that point, I would say, if you're one of the partners thinking about this, at that point, then you start to talk to your partner and see if the process of termination would make sense. You'd be surprised. A lot of times, if you're starting to think about ending the partnership, your partner's probably thinking about it too and also just not saying anything. And finally, then, I think it's important that the partnership um, ends as friends because you never really know when you might have to hitch the wagons again. So as an example, this is exactly what Cisco did when it said goodbye to a longtime partner, Ericsson. Um, It said it brought its people in and it asked itself, you know, first of all, what are the advantages or the disadvantages of saying goodbye to Ericsson? Do the advantages outweigh the disadvantages? They then thought about, and they together went with Ericsson to all mutual customers, and they thought about how that customer would be impacted as a result of the two companies splitting apart. And then they thoroughly communicated the rationale, and um, they worked through all the processes for making this happen between the two companies at a lot of different levels in the firm, just to make sure it was frictionless. Um, And then they worked to ensure that all customers were protected um, and basically that the firms kind of dissolved and walked away from each other um, in a way that was both um, stable and non-acrimonious. And that really is the way that you say um, goodbye well. You know, the other thing is firms have to think about um, developing reputations as good partners too. So when you say goodbye to a partner, you want that partner to go on to other possible prospective partners for you and say, you know, 
That firm, Cisco, it was a good firm to work with, and I would recommend partnering with them. Well, we've talked a lot today about frenemies, and ultimately our goal should be to avoid this type of relationship with our partners altogether. What other tips and strategies can business and individuals use to prevent frenemization? Yeah, so we did talk about the importance of relationship maps and uh, knowing when to say goodbye and doing that well. And I would tell you that in my book, Partnering with a Frenemy, there are a lot more examples and specifics on how to do those things. The one thing that I will underscore is the importance of what we call or what I call reciprocal investments. And basically, this is like skin in the game. And in order for benefits to be created together for both partners, in order to achieve the synergy of one plus one equals three, it doesn't happen by simply being present. Oftentimes, both sides really need to make investments that help to create those benefits. So maybe this may be dedicated capital equipment and machinery, or maybe having people that are specifically dedicated to working on that relationship. I've seen retailers and suppliers who have kind of rerouted um, their logistics chains in order to um, improve transportation and distribution and create efficiencies between them. In the auto industry, a lot of auto manufacturers work with like 3D um, printers and and suppliers to create parts that are customized to specific cars and parts. And all of these investments, they are what what economists would call credible commitments um, in the sense that these investments create skin in the game. They're also non-fungible. And by that, I mean, you can't just take those investments and easily redeploy it to another relationship. They lose value if either partners walk away. And there's just so much research, both um, theoretical and empirical, that show that those kinds of investments are almost a golden bullet in the sense that they really ensure that the parties will stay on track, um, that they won't try to screw each other, um, and that they'll stay in the game long enough for both of them to recoup their investments. So we've discussed the pitfalls of partnering at length today, but good partnerships do exist and are happening every day. What gives you hope for the future of partnering? You're right. Good partnerships do exist. They are achievable. They are not unicorns. And I will tell you that the secret to good partnering is that all of this partnering principles, good practices, all of this can be learned. So when we throw out these statistics about how most partnerships and personal relationships fail, I would say that a lot of that is also due to the fact that there is a lack of understanding as to what you should be doing, what you should be emphasizing. And these principles are available and accessible to anybody who's willing to learn. And so I think the good news around partnerships is that they truly can expand the pie of benefits. They can create synergy. One plus one equals three. And we actually have a lot of research and knowledge about how to do that. It's just a matter of learning. Sandy Jap is the Sarah Beth Brown Professor of Marketing at Guizueta Business School. She joined today to discuss the common pitfalls of partnering 
and tips on how to adapt your relationship management strategies to a constantly changing and dynamic environment. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Melanie. For more information about the Guizueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast.